I just wanted to say that, you know, this world, the consistent thing of the United States is that we live in a capitalist class society whose DNA is white supremacy. If we forget that in every one of our day-to-day struggles, we might win that struggle. We might make some advances. Just, just realize how many advances the civil rights movement made. But what has happened to those advancements? They are taking them back. They've taken back most of them. And as long as capitalism exists and we're under capitalist relations of production, they're going to be able to take it back. So we got to think further than just achieving our immediate goals. If we don't have any long-range strategic goals, we're in trouble. And that obstacle we must overcome. Hey folks, this is Stephen Pitts, host of Black Work Talk. And that was Jerome Scott, longtime organizer in the struggle for black freedom and worker rights. The clip was from the intergenerational black worker organizing panel, which took place on Friday, June 17th at the Labor Notes Conference in Chicago. We recorded the entire panel and are presenting the conversation across two separate episodes of Black Work Talk. Panel moderators were Toussaint Lossier of the University of Massachusetts Amherst and Bianca Cunningham of the Action Center on Race and the Economy. Toussaint has been my co-host on the miniseries On the Black Left, and Bianca was one of the guests on the miniseries. In addition to Jerome, panels included Susan DeCavara of the New Guild of New York City, Chris Smalls of the Amazon Labor Union, and Stacey Davis-Gates of the Chicago Teachers Union. In this first episode, Toussaint and I talk a bit about the context for the panel. We then jump to the workshop recording with the panelists addressing the first question, what are the key challenges facing Black workers today, and what should we do about it? Toussaint and I close out this episode with some reflections on that discussion. Let's get to that conversation. The moment that we're living in is one where not only are we seeing the sort of culmination of of decades-long kind of strategic interventions that folks on the right wing have made, not simply as a like one issue here, one issue there, but really as kind of a united front effort that's brought folks from like, you know, uh, those who oppose abortion rights and deny climate change and want to um, see, you know, an expansion of mass incarceration, um, want to strip away workers' rights, all these things, billionaire class, so on and so forth. But I, I really appreciated the way in which at least the kind of expansiveness that we got to on that panel uh, on kind of intergenerational black labor struggles, we, we, we had an opportunity to at least explicitly talk across different uh, life experiences around labor organizing, different periods of, of time, historically, what have you. Uh, but also, even though, you know, everybody on the panel was involved in the trade union movement in one way or another, folks really did not stay simply in that box in terms of talking about what is top of mind, but made connections around um, issues that come up in the workplace to issues that are taking place in the community, 
uh, around a variety of issues. And it was it was really uh, inspiring to see the way in which folks were mindful of not only the deep interconnections between those struggles, but also the key role, right, the central place of Black folks, Black liberation, Black workers, Black working class power in terms of being able to have a transformative effect, not just for people in our community, but in a, in a broader kind of holistic sense. Who actually was on the panel? Name names, man. So we had a real rock star panel at this uh, particular uh, part of the Labor Notes Conference. We had Jerome Scott, who's a former auto worker, uh, labor organizer in um, the uh, Detroit Auto Plants, member of the League of Revolutionary Black Workers, and a, a longtime director, founding director of Project South in Atlanta. We had uh, Susan uh, DeCarava, who's uh, president of the News Guild of New York, a local of News Guild um, uh, CWA, or Communication Workers of America. And we had uh, Stacey Davis-Gates, uh, who's uh, president of the Chicago Teachers Union, and Christian Smalls, who's uh, founder and president of the Amazon Labor Union. And just want to note that the order that we'll hear folks' voices, we'll hear uh, Jerome Scott, uh, Susan DeCarava, um, Christian Smalls, and then uh, Stacey Davis-Gates. So you'll probably be able to make out their voices pretty distinctly um, as you hear them just from the recording. So we have a dynamic group of panelists. I know that that's why the room is packed to the brim. I think they're turning people away. So we are at capacity, y'all. So our panelists include, first off, Jerome Scott. Jerome is a former auto worker, labor organizer in the auto plants of Detroit in the 60s and 70s. He was a member of the League of Revolutionary Black Workers, and he was the founding director of Project South. Next up, we have Susan DiCarava. Susan is the first black woman elected as president of the New York News Guild, a local of the News Guild CWA. Then we have Stacey Davis-Gates, who's the president of the Chicago Teachers Union. And finally, we have Christian Smalls, who's the founder and president of the Amazon Labor Union. Okay, so we're going to start off with our first question for the panel, and um, I'll kick it out there. We'll um, uh, uh, look forward to your responses. We'll go actually uh, from my left uh, down the table, and uh, Bianca will probably uh, come back with a follow-up question as well, too. Uh, but to, to get us started, I uh, just want to hear your thoughts on what are some of the key challenges facing black workers um, at this moment in time? And uh, what are some of your thoughts on some of the uh, key ways in which to address those challenges? So how y'all doing? <laughs> I'm, I'm so happy to get out of this mask for a minute, <laughs> but only for a minute. <laughs> You know, one of the major challenges that is still present today, that was present back in the 60s and the 70s, that was present back in the 1800s and so on, is that 
the challenge of being the last hired and the first fired, you know, that, that's been consistent ever since the when every since the end of free labor in this country. And the other challenge, of course, is the challenge of white supremacy, which has also been with us since the founding of this country. And a lot of people don't realize that white supremacy has a purpose. It's not just that they hate us. They want us to work for as little as possible so that they can exploit us to the maximum. And white supremacy provides a role for that. You know, that if they can say that we're below others in the working class, then they can pay us less and they can hire us last and they can fire us first. So the challenges of yesterday are still the challenges of today, fundamentally. Mm -hmm. Now, back in the day when I was working in the auto plants, um, we understood that the point of production was the critical point in the productive process in an industrial society. And we, you know, after looking around for a while, we realized that black workers were concentrated at the point of production because they were also the most dangerous jobs in the plant. But it became clear to us almost immediately that if we could stop work at the point of production, we could stop the capitalist economy from functioning. You know, it just depends on how well we were able to coordinate that struggle and how well we were able to educate people who were in those jobs to the necessity of stopping production. So one of the other challenges that that brought up to us that is still brought up today is the challenge of being able to politically and economically and theoretically educate ourselves. You know, because if we're not clear in this world that we live in, we're not going to be clear on how to fight it and how to get out of it. And I could go on, but I just want to just, because I don't want to talk too long on this first round, because I could keep talking. But I just wanted to say that, you know, this world, the consistent thing of the United States is that we live in a capitalist class society whose DNA is white supremacy. If we forget that in every one of our day-to-day struggles, we might win that struggle. We might make some advances. Just, just realize how many advances the civil rights movement made. But what has happened to those advancements? They are taking them back. They've taken back most of them. And as long as capitalism exists and we're on the capitalist relations of production, they're going to be able to take it back. So we got to think further than just achieving our immediate goals. If we don't have any long-range strategic goals, we're in trouble. And that obstacle we must overcome. Well, I'm not sure I want to follow that, Jerome. (laughs) Uh, I'm really just honored to be here on this panel with so many people who have been fighting the good fight for so long. And listening to you talk, Jerome, and thinking about the experiences of people in my family over the years, uh, people in my community over the years, my neighbors, my friends, 
um, it's very clear to me that the fight never ends. It's just the vectors that change. It is the way that we experience it that changes. And I think when we talk about the challenges that we face today, and we talk about <laughs> what white supremacy does, which we all know is that it shields the people that benefit from it from the consequences of it. And it makes repeat that. It shields <laughs> the people and the progenitors of white supremacy from the consequences of it. And we end up carrying that. And so I like to think about the challenges that we face in labor as not ones of organizing while black. It is about organizing while white because you must confront the inheritance that you illegally profit from. In my family, there were two kind of phrases that my parents always told us as we worked our way. I'm from New York. Um, I'm from Brooklyn, even better. <laughs> and there were two things that my parents always told us. One is that no matter where you are, even if you don't see yourself, know that black people are always there. My gosh. Always there. Yep. That's one. And the second is, is that since the very beginning, as Jerome was mentioning, black people have carried the moral center of this country. We have continued to hold it accountable. We have held the standard for what is right and what is true and what is just against insurmountable odds sometimes. And we have done it with joy and we have done it with courage and we have done it with a commitment even when we are in spaces that would do everything possible to make sure that we don't fulfill that which is in our DNA. And I think until as a labor movement, as a society, we confront what white supremacy does, the way that it shields people <laughs> from uh, the harm that it does and makes other people carry it, then we won't succeed. And I really think that's what you were referencing in terms of we'll fight a fight, but it's not winning. It's not actually changing the context in which the fight happens. And that's really the struggle, I think, for humanity. I mean, it's not just here in the United States. We see what's happening across the globe. So I think that this is a conversation that has been happening over the ages. It's a conversation we'll have today. It's a conversation we'll have tomorrow. And what I want to see is that conversation turn into action. So um, I'm really excited to have this conversation with all of you and then to get into some action. Yeah. Let's do that. <laughs> Yeah, talking about action, I'm about that. <laughs> um, <clears throat> yeah, well, um, in this country, and I'm my short two years, so compared to everybody else on this panel, you know, since I've been fired, I've been propelled into the activism and organizing realm. And I can tell you, I'm a fast learner. And um, this, this, uh, this ain't it. You know, we all, especially, uh, Black people, you know, I'm talking directly to y'all because I'm a black man 
and I was raised by a single black woman, my mother. Um, every day I used to watch her get up, go work two jobs, go to college. I had to grow up faster, grow up and have more responsibilities at a younger age. And when the pandemic started, right, and um, I started organizing the workers in my shop floor um, just to walk out over basic. You know, this is a life or death situation. We had no PPE, nothing. And I went to the next black man. I said, yo, brother, come on out and walk with me. You know, I'm a supervisor at this. You know, I'm talking to a worker that, you know, he's he's on the line. I'm trying to protect him. And he said, I can't do that. I got kids. And I said, you know what? I'm like, at first, I didn't. it took me a second. I'm like, well, damn, I got kids, too. Um, and what I noticed, um, in my short journey of organizing across the country, I traveled, met with a lot of workers, a lot of people met with a lot of black people, the slave mentality. We don't talk about it, but it's, Mm -hmm. it's, it's real. Mm -hmm. It's real. The fear that we have when it comes to opposing white supremacy, when it comes to opposing white people, when it comes to controlling our own destiny. We just give that right on up. A lot of us do. A lot of us do. And we have to stop doing that. What do you think they trying to do to me right now? I ain't done yet. What do you think they trying to do to me right now? What do you think they trying to do to our movement? We are black led, worker led movement. They don't like that. They don't want that. They don't want to support us. Why do you think we ain't getting none? Right. We ain't had shit when we started. We ain't had nothing, no money, no resources, no established unions, nothing. We just had each other. And when we won, that's when everybody came. Yep. Everybody came and their mother came. That's right. And I'm like, yeah, thanks for coming. But guess what? I ain't forget, you know? So as we sit here and the conversation about black people, I'm not letting none of y'all take what we started. And I'm telling you that right now, as a black man, and knowing what our value is in this country, knowing what our worth is, knowing that every movement in this country started with black people, we can't allow that to happen anymore. We gotta stop the slave mentality, stop living in fear, stop allowing people to take over our movements, to wash us out, to drown our voices, and to take over what we started and created. It happens every single day. It happens all the time in these movements. That's how they keep us divided. That's what they want. And we got the younger generation. I know y'all not with it. And we have to stand up right now. We can't wait anymore. I know. And that's what um this conversation needs to go towards that direction as well is the time is now. We don't have no more time to wait anymore. We want to raise our children in a society that works for us. We got to build a system that works for us. And right now, this is not the system. Yeah. I have no idea what the question is. <laughs> <laughs> so what are some key challenges facing black workers today? And what should we do about it? Key challenges. Um, First off, uh, good afternoon, everyone. It's good to see people. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And may God protect all of us. 
um, in jest, but also for real. And um, a special shout out to everyone from Chicago. <laughs> and especially to my family that's here in full effect. I love y'all. Um, <clears throat> our world is um, suffering from a lack of love and humanity. And I'm going to say that a lot because we often think that love is something that is weak and fluffy and comfy. And love is really a transformational state of being. And um, you have to find love and how we relate and see each other. Because once you do that, it is easy to make a choice to fight for that that you don't understand. And white supremacy is going to require us to to fight it with love. Because the type of transformation we need human beings who are imperfect to go through will require them to believe it and have faith. And those things don't come through our humanity, unfortunately. They only come through love. So I want to say that love is the thing. That's our headline, right? Because the forces that we are fighting are grounded in evil and repetition and pain and trauma. And the only thing that I know that can confront that adequately enough is this ethic of love. And it is not a weak thing. You know, I think about... <clears throat> hearing, I heard white supremacy, I heard consequences of white supremacy, and then I heard self-determination turn into group determination. And you can't do, you can't confront and name white supremacy if you are unaware of the love you have for yourself. Like, because it's easy to have a mentality when you don't have an actual sense of self. And then to see consequences means that you're paying attention Right. And so I'm just thinking of how do we do this? Because this is not Jerome told us when he started, this is not a new question and I don't have a new answer. Mm -hmm. Right. He said that to us. So I have nothing profound to say with that respect, especially with Jerome here. What I will say, <laughs> I'm just telling you what I will say is that what we will need is a recognition of what we need in this moment. And so when I'm when I love you, I'm going to ask you, are you OK? I'm going to ask you, are you hungry? I'm going to ask you if you have shelter. I'm going to ask you, are your basic needs met? Right. Because love is going to encourage that inquiry. That's one. But people respond. And when they respond in the context of a pandemic, what they're going to tell us is that my rent is passed through and I'm facing eviction. They're going to tell us that, you know what, my kids have to go to school and they go to schools that are under defunded. Let's use that word for that. Um, they're going to say that my um, my schools are defunded and I don't know if they can keep my baby safe. Right. And she's <laughs> she's going to say um, I work two jobs and none of them have these. And I'm scared to go, but I got to go. So when we hear that as labor, what do we do with it? D do we have infrastructure and institution to even hold it? That's number one. Right. And then do we have the courage to tell the institution that we have to shift to some mutual aid? And I'm going to tell you why that's important in this moment, because gas is almost seven dollars in Chicago. So if gas is seven dollars, what else is right? That said, I'm going to say this. We got to learn to feed people. 
And feed is not just the act of food. Feed is what do you need? It's tough to organize black people who don't have. See, we have gotten used to the great getting up morning. See, I can wait to see Jesus. So it's it's less easy for me to believe that my action in this moment when I need so much is going to transform anything. So we have to get to the point of addressing the immediate trauma and need of this moment. So our institutions have to shift. We don't have any capacity, known capacity in our movement right now to address the needs of people in this moment. So we have to shift and transform. And we have to shift and transform to the immediate mutual need of this moment. So what I would say, love as the headline, inquiry is your subtext, right? And then transforming the institution in the immediate to meet the needs of those that you need for the liberation that we deserve. Thank you for that. And I just want to follow up on something that you said, Jerome, uh, you said we need a long term strategy. I heard you say that. Chris said you said you were about that action. Um, you know, so what are some methods? All of you are in positions to, to be able to deploy strategy and come up with strategy. I know my experience in the labor movement is that oftentimes we are a second thought. In strategy, you know, we are the we're after. So how do we come up with long term strategy? What are some methods that are inclusive and democratic? How do we do it differently than what we've seen it done in the labor movement thus far? Unfortunately, I haven't noticed any difference in the trade union movement. I, I call it trade union movement rather than labor movement because labor is much broader mm-hmm. than just the organized section of it. Mm-hmm. And so, I, you know, but the trade union movement. We all know it's been shrinking in size over the last 50 years, and it's shrinking in size for a number of reasons. One of the most fundamental ones is what's happening with capitalist economics. You know, the the plant I worked in was Detroit Forge, Chrysler plant in Detroit. And um, when I worked there, we had 2000 workers and we produced internal engine parts you know, the camshaft and the crankshaft, all the internal parts of an engine. And and we were only one of two plants in the world that did that at the time. And um, I don't think that the trade union movement as a whole will come up with a sensible strategy for us. I mean, because like you said, I agree with you. The strategy that they come up with is strategies that they make in some room where maybe one or two of us is in there now, you know, and maybe not. Maybe the one or two of them that's supposed to be in there, they, they're not in there. Who knows? But I don't think they came up with a long-term strategy that would satisfy the, the needs and wants of us, not only black folk and black workers, but working class people everywhere, you know? And so, and one of the reasons for that which is what I was talking about before, is that the trade union movement made two big mistakes historically. The first one, when the trade union movement first started in this country, it was a working class movement. It was not just a members movement. During the McCarthy era of the early 50s, the trade union compromise was that we're no longer going to represent the working class. We're only going to represent We're only going to represent our members. That was the first strategic mistake. 
when you make that mistake, it's impossible for you to come up with a strategy mm-hmm. that would deal with the problems of that of workers in this country. The second thing that happened was in the early 70s, um, the trade union movement started taking in more money from their investment than they did from their members. Now, think about that for a minute. Their investments was in the corporations that they had organized. And their investments became more profitable for them than your dues. So you wonder why the trade union leadership make the kind of decisions that they make? They make it because they're following that money. You know, and and it costs you, it's okay that we lose members because we're getting our money from our investments as well. So that was the second thing. So when you combine those two things together, I don't think we can really talk about a strategy that the trade union movement will come up with that would be a strategy that would favor working class people and particularly working class people of color. And I began to say that one of the main reasons was the economy. And all of us know all we got to do is look in our pocket and pick out that cell phone that there's a revolution going on in technology right now. What we might not think about is that that revolution is also taking place in production in this country, which means that the plant I worked in that had 2,000 workers when I worked there now has 200 workers. And they produced 20 times the number of engine parts that we produced. That technological revolution is driving everything. You know, it it doesn't feel like it, and it feels like it's just starting, but it's driving all these changes. And it's and it's causing the trade union movement to lose membership considerably. So if we want to have a strategy, a long term strategy, we got to do it. Ain't nobody going to do it for us. We have got to do it. And we have got to figure out a way to overcome our struggles. You know, and at this conference, we've had a lot of discussion about the internal struggles of what's happening with the Amazon workers and what's happening with other workers, these internal struggles, and we, we sort of characterize them as being just horrible. Well, struggle is common for the working class. That's how we cleanse our thinking is through struggle. You know, so we can't just say that just because they're having these debates around which direction to go in, that that's a bad thing. If we join those debates and and uh, educate ourselves to the extent that we can influence those debates in a proper direction, they become good things. You know, so don't just deny struggle because it won't work. That struggle within the working class is going to continue. We just have to make sure it continues in a revolutionary way and not a reformist way. The good part about that is class struggle is also true for the ruling class. You know, they're in struggle, too, as witnessed by January 6th. You know, and and believe me. And I'm I'm that struggle is deep and it is ferocious. Mm -hmm. And what are they struggling over? They're struggling over how they're going to control this upsurge in worker organizing and and general organizing after the 
the Floyd murder, you know, we had the biggest rebellions throughout the world. They're, they're scared. They don't act like they're scared, but they're scared. And their own part of them, a big part of them, see their only solution is to move toward fascism. Because that's the only form of the state that they think they control this arising struggle that's developing throughout the country and throughout the world. And that, my friend, is our greatest danger at this moment, is we have, we have got to fight to make sure that that section of the ruling class does not win. But it's a difficult task because we can't fight it in such a way that the other section of the ruling class wins. <laughs> Because believe me, they don't mean us no good either. <laughs> and that's why I say that we have to do it. We have to develop a strategy, a liberatory strategy, if there's going to be one for us. There's no other way forward. Right. We got to do it ourselves. That's exactly why, you know, um, with our... With our campaign, we decided to go independent. You know, we couldn't, um, we didn't see um, a system in a, an established union where it worked for our struggle at Amazon. We had to do things our way that felt necessary for the struggles that we were dealing with in the warehouse. Um, going through an established union, uh, of course, y'all got money, y'all got resources, y'all got uh, years of experience. Um, but also, um, there's, a, there's, a, there's something that's been in place for years when it comes to unions that um, obviously we lose representation. So have been noticing that for years, for decades in this country, going down and, and being on the shop floor, witnessing what I seen day to day with the Amazon workers, I knew that we had to create something new. We couldn't just go back and affiliate and start something with somebody else. We had to start over. We had to understand what's going on with these workers. We had to have several conversations. And what I notice is in the labor movement is that everything is traditional. It's a traditional style of organizing, secrecy, you know, there's a way our methods that unions, traditional unions organize uh, certain shop floors, whether it's having a bunch of salts, whether it's having their own organizers go and infiltrate, whether it's doing it in secrecy for years upon years. You cannot do that with these new 21st century style corporations. You cannot do that at Amazon. You can't do that at Apple. You can't do that at Starbucks because they'll fire you. We all know that. We've seen it. I'm one of them. They fire you as soon as they get a hint of you organizing. So how do you keep that conversation in the building alive? You get the workers to organize themselves. You get to a point where the workers say, you know what? Even though Chris no longer works here, even though um, Gerald no longer works here, even though uh, Jay no, no longer works here, we're going to continue to carry their voices. We're going to continue to organize. And once you get to that point, you have a stronghold in your shop floor. And that stronghold, you have a core where you can decide how you want to maneuver going forward. Do y'all want to affiliate? 
No, we want to create something new, right? Okay, let's do that. Just know that it just made our task 10 times harder, but the reward is going to be 10 times greater. And once you commit yourself to that, because it's a commitment, you're sacrificing. And we all know as organizers, we don't sleep. You, you eat at 12 o'clock at night. You know, you have to deal with your kids. You have to deal with your, um, your own personal needs. Everything's out of order. But the commonality of the issues in the warehouse, that's what brings everybody together. Doesn't matter. And y'all heard me say this talking to Senator Graham and you ain't on the left, right? It don't matter. We all have problems in the, in the warehouse that we can agree needs to be corrected. And that's what we build off of. What commonality, what issues that we have as people, as people that's going to bring us together. And once you have that, you have your revolution. And that's what we're living in right now. We're living in a moment where you can look around this room and there's some faces in here that you may never talk to on the streets, but they're here. They're here for one reason. They want change. And we don't have to have this conversation. I don't know how long Labor Notes has been going on. It's my first one. But I don't know how long Labor Notes has been going on. But how many people here? 4,000? Yeah. I could take y'all 4,000. Let's go to a warehouse right now. <laughs> you know? That's, that's the action. And everybody here... Everybody here is an organizer. I don't got to tell y'all nothing. Y'all know what to do already. Get them people signed up. That's it. So it's not about having the conversations all, you know, we can have conversations. Yeah, debates, conferences, conventions, all that's good. But that does that only go but so far. What's the next step? What do y'all want to do after that? I done went all the way to the White House. Ain't shit happened. <laughs> <laughs> so it don't mean nothing, you know? Joe Biden sent me a letter to my house. That doesn't do anything for my members in the building. We representing 8,300 workers right now with this independent union. One independent union representing 83. That's the size of a small city. So for us to create something worker-led, independent, and represent a small city, just imagine if 4,000 of us went to a warehouse. Today, we took labor notes and said, you know what? What's the closest Amazon building? Let's go get that right now. And we have it done right now. So we got we to gotta change these conversations into real action, not just, you know, everybody's here for a weekend. Because y'all don't, I don't know how many labor notes y'all been to, but I'm going to tell you now, if I'm coming back next year, I want to hear you know, what we did last year, not what we talking about for next year, because that's what it's about. We got to start... Stop talking about it and actually do it. Get out there and do it. I'm unemployed. I've been unemployed for two years and, and counting until I get a contract, in which I have to fight for. And I'm going to fight for it because I want to get paid. They owe me a bag. And um, um, we, we have to, we have to realize that this, this window of opportunity is closing. Y'all don't even know who y'all voting for in 24. And that's true. Don't act like y'all do. Y'all ain't voting for Biden. So, so, and we know, we know, the, we talk about long-term issues, right? What are we doing? What is the working class doing? Are we just going to allow 
what we've been seeing and what we've been dealing with for the last 50 years that continue happening? Or are we going to create our own party? Are we going to have a general strike? Are we going to shut shit down? I'm with that. I'm with it. I ain't got nothing to lose. Nothing to lose, right? So, you know, once again, when I mean I'm about that action, you know, that's what I'm about. You know, everybody that's been organizing with me, who met me, who talked to me in person, this is what you get, you know, and we got to show these people, like, you know, it's a new, new generation, new revolution, new school, whatever you want to call it. This is it. You ain't getting, oh, we ain't going to sit back and just take what y'all get. We're not doing that no more. No, I think we all know the issues. We know what we're living with. Uh, we know our politicians ain't doing shit for us. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's cool and all that we have support like that. But at the same time, we got to hold not only the politicians and elected officials accountable, we got to hold ourselves accountable. I think when we talk about embracing action and, and we talk about love as a radical transformative revolutionary force. We have to talk about essentially centering black liberation in all of these fights because you cannot succeed without it. And that is essentially what we're talking about here. So one of the things that, you know, I, with my union, which uh, represents um, editorial workers, journalists, and we know that part of what the struggle is, is to get out of this myth that we're living in, which is that everything's okay. You've got a house, you got a car, we're all integrated, we eat together, we take the subway together, and everything is okay. When we know that all of that hides the fact that we're probably more deeply segregated than we have ever been. Black people do not have the same educational opportunities. We do not have the same economic stability. We do not have the same professional opportunities. And the things that sustained us through previous struggles, a robust and independent black press, a real real sense of community that fed each other, that answered the question, what do you need, has been decimated. And it hides in little secret pockets where we can try and keep it safe. And so the question is, how do we get back to a point where we all understand what is needed, that our needs are central to the success of this country? <laughs> And how do we do it without sacrificing so many of our young, so many of our families? Because that's, that's the dichotomy. That's what makes us tired. That's when people say, I don't want to do this anymore. And I think to me, what comes back to that is two things. We must find and connect to what Stacy and Chris are talking about, which is love as a verb, as an action, as a force with which we regard ourselves and our families and our neighbors, and we say that that will sustain us because we will ask each other, what do you need? And we will find a way to provide it. We will not measure ourselves or accept the measuring of ourselves against these false standards and these myths. We will return to a space where we are telling our own stories, where we are demanding to know the truth. Um, 
And also, frankly, <laughs> strategically, uh, you know, a lot of times from my members, and maybe some of you have heard this also, when you're in bargaining over a contract and people say, none of this matters. I just want to talk about money, right? I just want to know about wages. When is my raise coming, right? And the thing that I look at is I say, well, what is the... What is the bottom? What is the measure against which your wage, your raise is being measured? Because if my raise and my money is down here, guess what? Your money is going to go down here, too. That's right. So I think we have to be very smart and strategic in framing the way black liberation actually helps everybody else. That's right. I always look for black people (laughs) because we set the standard, whether or not we even know we're doing it. And uh, when we do that, when we make that conscious choice and we understand that framing these discussions in this way doesn't mean that we're giving up. It doesn't mean that we're selling out. It just means that we are doing the thing that we have always done, which is to survive and to use the knowledge that we have to reach people who we cannot reach morally, who we cannot reach logically and say, okay, what's the next step? Enlightened self-interest. Fine. Let's go there because I'm coming from a place of love because I know that act will mean that I can answer the question. What do you need of my fellow colleagues, my friends, my neighbors? It will enable me to answer that question. And I think we really need to shift the conversation around what it is that, you know, who's going to lead the charge because black people are always leading the charge. It's more about How do we lead the charge in a way that makes sure that the people who are truly the obstacles are no longer the obstacle, right? And so that's the challenge before us. And we're up to the task. We just have the the ability to embrace it and go there. So I I don't know what else to say, y'all, but that's it. I mean... So I should tell you that I'm a school teacher. Um, And so I'm taking notes because I'm hearing it. Um, So what I heard first is that um, the labor movement compromised itself when it said members only. Mm -hmm. And then you also said that it started chasing the economy in which was oppressive to their workers. Mm -hmm. So their workers became a parenthetical. And then I heard you say that in order to transform spaces you have to transform perspective and who gets to create perspective and strategy and then I heard you say that lifting all boats means that everyone wins so I'm taking all of this in because strategy is all of those things honestly because strategy that wins and I and I win because we win that's right But the winning starts with the things that they just named first, right? So I am reminded as a history teacher that we are celebrating Juneteenth this weekend. And Juneteenth, the way in which it happened, not the way in which they are already like marginalizing it. Um, Juneteenth, let me say it like this. The Juneteenth story that carries me is that 
my people looked around and said, we leaving because we don't have to anymore. And that it was not the government that said, okay, it was the government that saw this as a disadvantage to the reconnection of their union. So let's figure out how to leverage what was already done. So the lesson is, is that government always responds to action. Black people have never, Americans have never won anything without making it, fill in the blank of it, respond to action. So the strategy is a commitment to action, a commitment to sacrifice, and a commitment to the repetition of doing it over and over and over and over again. So this is what I'll say. We can't, the strategy is to reopen our purpose. So you can fight for your members and you can fight for the working class and you can fight for immigrant communities and you can fight for black people and you can fight for LGBTQIA+. You see what I'm saying? You can fight for universal child care. You can fight for affordable housing. See, it is that which contested the chase of the money. Because you can't chase money and also surround apartment buildings before your sister, your sibling is kicked out. That's right. Because that is the fight. You can't expect me to trust you with my paycheck if you don't understand what it will cost me. So when we anchor our work, it has to be anchored in a strategy of inclusion. And just telling me I can come in and do what you've been doing, because I think that's what you just said, is not powerful. So when you when people come in, the table has to reflect the liberation of all of those that sit around it, because your theory is, is when we win here, you win here, here and here. Uh Right. So the tables have to get bigger. Uh So even if it doesn't work the first time. Or the second time, you got to keep trying it because we know what doesn't work. So let's continue to test the hypothesis that including more, making spaces more equitable actually help us. Right. So when I look at the Chicago Teachers Union, we're in our second generation of proving that theory successful. It actually works to have a union that is multi-generational. It actually works to have a union that is grounded in bargaining, leveraging illegally. I might add, don't tell anybody I said that um, the common good. See, I can say there are 20,000 documented homeless students that attend the Chicago public schools. And what do I look like looking at my student every day and knowing that they are either going to a shelter or they're sleeping in a car and asking them, what the bell ringer of the day is. How does it work to not have stability and have expectations of a five-year-old? What does it look like to say that workers are responsible for poor test scores when we know one is the tool of white supremacy, right? Exclusion. And, And though, 
that test score does not give that child what it actually needs. It actually penalizes them. That said, you have to fight for a better school day that gives them the type of curriculum that is liberatory. Mm -hmm. But you also have to fight for that child's family, not that child, because that baby don't exist on an island. And they often put our black children on islands as if they don't belong to communities or mothers or fathers. That said, you have to see what the needs are and you have to meet them. So that's common good bargaining, right? And then you also have to think about it like this. How do you convince people and others humanity who ain't already sold on it? You have to keep trying and trying and trying. And here's the strategy. You can settle a contract for wages and benefits after you settle it for sanctuary protections. Stacey, I'm so glad that you talked about kind of the broader table, because I think when we talk about myths, I talked before about the myths that we live in. Um, When we talk about black liberation, when we talk about centering these issues, when we talk about answering the question, what do you need as black people? It is a myth that that only refers (laughs) literally to you and I. Black liberation is the most inclusive philosophy of engagement that there is in this country. Because everyone is always welcome at our table. That is true. Now, they may not all be at the adult table, but they're in the room. And they got a table, and they've got a plate, and a knife, and a fork, and something on it, because we cared enough to say, what do you need? And then we put it on the plate and put it in front of you and said, here you are. And it is this concept of understanding that black liberation equals the idea and the creation of a beloved broad community into which we must base everything that we're talking about. It is only, frankly, because of white supremacy that there is this perception that talking about black people and black liberation and the needs of our people is somehow exclusionary. The fact is, is that the whole idea of whiteness is in and of itself ex- exclusionary. And a myth. That's what it is. And a myth, right. And a myth. And a myth. And we got to stop buying into it because it's not true. Our lives show us that. And so I think as long as we have that grounding, as we've all been talking about here, from there we can see what the action is that we must take, right? I mean, it is not a big step to get up and walk to the nearest Amazon warehouse when you understand that the myth we're living in is that we got to talk about it and then talk about it and then talk about it and then talk about it. (laughs) Meanwhile, people are hurting. People are suffering harm. You got to take a plate, put some food on it, make sure that the door is open for the people to sit at the table, and you make sure that they're fed. Right. Yep. Yo, Toussaint, that was good, man. Mm-hmm. Anything special jumped out from that, that first part, man, you want to kind of re- reflect on? I mean, I just, I just think it's really amazing the way in which, for myself as somebody who is like, you know, uh, facilitating moderating the panel it was really amazing to see the which the ways in which um the different panelists were 
listening to each other, picking up on points that others had articulated. And we, we really got this real interesting um, dynamic conversation taking place between them. Um, and then also, you know, you can you can hear it as well, too, uh, between them and the audience as well. And what you, you might not realize is that there's, you know, like a contingent of folks from CTU, uh, Chicago Teachers Union. There's a contingent of folks from the Amazon Labor Union. Um, but, you know, um, there's a real energy in the room um, that uh, really, uh, I, I think, gives a lot of um, life to the conversations that are taking place and the points that people are making. I hope folk enjoyed this special episode of Blackboard Talk. Please tune in to the second special episode of Blackboard Talk, which captures the second question posed to the panelists. What does it mean to support Black worker organizing at this moment in time? And also we have the Q&A with the audience. Thanks for joining me this week on Blackboard Talk. This podcast is co-sponsored by Convergence, an online magazine devoted to providing space for the key conversations needed to advance our movement. As always, I hope we are able to financially support Black Work Talk. This special presentation of Labor Notes panel was made possible due to your support. Please subscribe to the podcast wherever you find your podcast and go to Patreon and become a sustainer. Until next time, stay safe and be well.